Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with Mark, episode 144, 144, Mark, Friday, July the 10th, 2020. And the COVID fun continues, Mark. We've been locked down again from this week in Victoria, Australia. Um, a hard lockdown, Mark, for six weeks. Um, we're not allowed to not allowed to do nothing, as they say, um, in certain suburbs of Melbourne. <laughs> and uh, we have to stay at home unless we don't, Mark, So because our cases have, well, for our region, skyrocketed over 170 new cases, Mark, which is a lot for us. I think it's the highest number since the pandemic was um, commenced, Mark, in in our region. Um, Certainly not as many as you see every day in a lot of the other countries, but that's what's happening here, Mark. What's happening up your way? Well, we've all just been a little bit nervous about you guys. It's there's, you know, it's been a little bit difficult because it's become a bit of a political football, um, and our, you know, many people around the world would not be aware that Australia is a federation of of states, and we have state borders, and um, and sometimes those borders are well closed. Um, not very often. The New South Wales, or the state that I'm in, um, shared shares a border with Victoria, and um, and the it was shut down 101 years ago during the the uh, the Spanish flu, um, and just today they've shut put pulled the shutters, closed the doors. They've got drones flying over the Murray. The Murray River uh, uh, is a large part of the border and making sure that no one jumps in the river and gets over. Uh, With missiles, hellfire missiles attached there, Mark, in case something happens. Yes, the um, well, interesting, semi-related to that um, this week um, as this episode goes to air is we're probably about halfway through the Australian Veterinary Association annual conference, which is online this year, Mark, we were briefly talking about it, called Vet Fest. So, for those of you who are interested, um, you can do a search for Vet Fest, and um, it's been very well attended, and they're very, very happy with the numbers. And I think it's one of the other things that will change, um, perhaps permanently, with the number of conferences that are held. Um, for businesses generally, Mark, um, will be a lot more online than when people look at the numbers and think, gee, why are we paying um, $100,000, which is the figure that was thrown at me during one of the um, meetings um, to fly out international speakers, $100,000, that they can just um, avoid having to pay that and just put that towards which will well and truly um, leave a lot of change um, to an online um, company to run the, the program for you. And I think it's um, the numbers, Mark, are, are, are not far off. It's between seven and 900 um, people um, so far registered, which is pretty damn good because some of the face-to-face AVA conferences have um, had less than a 1,000 people over the last few years. I think it's... um. 
Certainly, I've noticed people become much, much more comfortable with that online learning environment. And I don't think it'll ever absolutely replace some face-to-face stuff, but I can see, I can definitely see it replacing a proportion of it in a significant fashion. Yes, nothing will replace the unusual quiz, Mark, and nothing will replace the view of you with sunburn, um, which... um, you can only fully appreciate that stuff face-to-face, Brendan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, you have a bit of a shout-out to one of our um, sponsors, don't you? I do have a shout-out to our uh, um, wonderful sponsor, Small Specialised Animal Nutrition, the Australian distributor for the Oxbow group of products. Um, and, um, you know, where we – I wander around the hospital sometimes and I'm actually genuinely um, amazed at the number of products that we use within the hospital that um, that come from our three sponsors. But um, just uh, the, other, the other day I was, um, you know, we see a large number of rats, Brendan. Rat pets, pet rats are a surprisingly um, a significant proportion of our exotic cases and um, and it is a real uh, benefit, I think, um, for us to be able to offer them something that's a little bit above, you know, a few years ago we were just talking about people picking up uh, laboratory rat food, pelleted rat food. Um, you know, that stuff is scientifically shown to keep the rats alive in a laboratory situation in optimal health. Um, people can buy it from produce stores in large bags. But it's certainly a step down that sort of supplied food compared to the rat food that uh, we can get from uh, specialised animal nutrition, the garden select range and um, the palatability, the flavour profile, um, the, the uh, um, well, I like the idea there's a touch of rosemary and thyme in there and um, and certainly the rats in hospital that we have, they love the stuff. So um, I'm just, uh, there's often, you know, I pay attention to our sponsors and what they supply, but um, sometimes it's just out of the corner of my eye I notice another thing and, and we I just wanted to shout out to uh, Specialised Animal Nutrition and let them know how much I appreciate having these products available. Here, here, and they're lovely people. All our sponsors are lovely people, aren't they, Mark? So we're very happy and proud to have them as our sponsors. Um, we have a couple of news stories, Mark, before we jump into an interesting main topic this week. And I think you need to take your story first because mine's a little bit light on, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, my story is uh, I really enjoyed this. You you looked this one up for me and I think did we didn't get this one from our researcher, did we? I think we did. I oh, think this okay. might have been from our, our trusty researcher. It looks a bit too, um, <laughs> too formal for us to find, yes. Um, well, shout out to to our wonderful research team and the lead researcher. I'm so glad that they – this one I really enjoyed. This is microscopic feather features reveal fossil birds' colours and explain why cassowaries shine. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I look at lots of birds and, um, and I love the – the beautiful plumage that I get to see, you know, our Australian parrots and honey eaters. Um, but um, 
how those colours are generated um, is a thing that, um, you know, we know it involves pigments, we know it involves cells that organise pigments, but um, the actual detail can be a little bit um, complicated. And um, and so so it is with some um, cassowaries. Uh, researchers um, have found that there is a specific mechanism um, that makes cassos shine that was previously undescribed in birds. Um, and it informs some things about extinct species. So as I understand it, um, the because cassos don't fly, um, there's a certain freedom in the development of their feathers. They can do things that other birds uh, are restricted from doing uh, because other birds need feathers to be aerodynamic. They're restricted in what they can do. Um, so in the cassos um, and some other birds that have uh, rainbow flecks or glossy colours, um, there's a part of the cell that produces pigments um, called the melanosome um, and these affect colour but indirectly they create molecules that light bounces off um, and those uh, those pigments um, the way that uh, the melanosomes uh, cause the light to bounce produce those colours which is a really cool thing because they're not they're not that colour the pigment is not that colour themselves so cassos are unusual in that there are pigments, blue pigments in their skin, and that's a natural colour, but um, the colour of their feathers is, uh, is not. So the interesting thing about this with extinct birds is that there was an unusual fossil, um, a bird, an extinct bird, Calxaxvis grandii, um, which lives in what is now Wyoming, and there's exceptionally well-preserved fossils, which include imprints of the feathers. You can look at the fossil slab and see an outline of where the feathers were because you can see the black stain of melanin that's left over even after 50 million years or so. So Scientists peeled off little flakes of the fossil from the dark, containing the dark spots of melanin, and using scanning electron microscopes, they looked for remnants of preserved melanosomes. Um, looking at these, they were able to see the specific shape of the pigment-producing melanosomes, um, and given their specific uh, shape, they were able to uh, determine that those birds, those ancient birds, um, had iridescent feathers, much like our glossy uh, black cockatoos or the cassowaries. So it always amazes me how they deduce these things, Brendan. So I, I thought that was an excellent article, Glossy Birds from Now and the Past. It's a shining example. God. Good. <laughs> Of good uh, good research, Mark. Um, and speaking of good research, my new story, why do cats sit in a square if you tape out a square on the ground? Um, have you seen this article? And have, have you seen the video, Mark? If not, I will send you a, a, um, a um, cut and paste of it, Mark, and you can go to it um, as I speak. There's, um, there's more than one video of this, though, isn't there? There is, and it's not – well, okay, so let's go back to the start here. Um, and it's about experiments often usually with tape where you um, initially 
start with taping out a square on the floor, say on, on your floorboards, and having your cat walk into that um, square or place it in that square, and they think they're in a box. They think they can't get out of it. They just stay there. Um, and there's some some thoughts with um, um, some of the some of the cat behaviour consultants that they consulted for this story um, suggest that perhaps cats feel comfortable when they're sort of confined and they feel like they're um, surrounded by the edge of a um, shallow um, edge of a, of a tray, for instance. Um, and one, one thought is that perhaps they, that their perception of the sides and their eyesight is such or not such that they, that they, they can't tell that they, um, it is just tape on the ground there, Mark. So um, there's lots of people who then play around with this sort of um, um, situation and then um, have tried hexagons and circles and all sorts of shapes, Mark, um, and drawings on the ground there and um, popping their cat in there and um, um, torturing their cats, um, although some of them seem to really like it, don't they? Um, have you done this? And I heard your cat in the background um, earlier on in this podcast, Mark. Have you tried anything like this with your cat? I have and not. And what do you think of it all? What do you think of it? I, Why I, do they do this? I have not done it to my cats, and I suspect they would be too lazy to actually. They just sit on the lounge near the fire. They, they're not going to move out for anything. Um, I, I think there is an element of uh, curiosity of, um, I don't know, in the wild, they definitely like hiding in tight little spots. And so I could understand that anything that sort of gave them the visual cues of a concealed place, like, you know, limits, walls, shadows, that they would feel comfortable sitting in there and they you know, like many things in our house um, with uh, many of our pets, the stimuli that we provide may be reminiscent of something in the world but may not necessarily be precisely the same. But that uh, still may elicit a response in the animal. So I suspect it's something along those lines. Yes. And it's sort of taken it off a little bit during this pandemic mark because the, um, in the Philippines somebody um, took a photo of stray cats sitting in circles and um, where it was a place where you do, humans were supposed supposedly practicing social distancing and they um, made a comment that gee the cats are very good at social distancing they're all sitting in their little circles um, so yeah a bit of a Bit of a non-story, I suppose, in one respect, <laughs> especially if you don't like cats. Um, I, 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 we haven't had a cat, and I think you know this story, Mark, at our house for, well, since um, I met my lovely wife because she just does not like cats. Um, I had cats as a younger um, a younger person and um, when I lived at home, but um, no matter how much I try and convince um, dear Annie to have a cat in our household, we... Um, have not been able to convince her, and I think with our two greyhounds as well, um, they're not exactly cat friendly. They like to chase little fluffy things. It would not end too well for the cat. And if it was sitting in a square mark, I think it would be all over. Tell me, um, tell me what um what is like? Does Annie feel? What is it about cats that Annie doesn't like? It, she sums it up in one sentence. She finds them squishy. <laughs> That's her thought. They're squishy. <laughs> so, 
So um, I would have thought she found me squishy, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but um, who knows. Well, on that point, Mark, I think we should jump into our main story here, otherwise we won't um, make the time limit as usual. And um, it's a really interesting one, and you suggested this one, and we have touched on it a little bit in some previous episodes of our podcast, and that, but we're taking it to the max with a full episode on it, and that is the condition that is most commonly called spinal osteopathy in reptiles. Um, we see it particularly more commonly in snake species. Um, so do you want to kick it kick it off, Mark? And um, well, what is it? What is it? It's a bit of a it's a bit of a syndrome, isn't it? It is a bit of a syndrome, Brendan. I um, we it's a, I find it a fascinating topic because for a couple of reasons. The first one is that um, it's surprisingly common, and um, and we would I suppose at least a couple of times a week we would have a snake come in. Um, the 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 uh, clients owning it would know that something wasn't quite right um that the snake was maybe not moving normally or when it did move they could see something wasn't uh wasn't usual um and and you know we place them on the 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 uh the clean floor of the consult room if it's a big snake and uh and there will be a segment that um that just doesn't flex that just stays rigid and we can be pretty confident that that snake has some spinal changes which um which uh, won't be very good, and and then we love to get a radiograph of them to get it to uh, appreciate a little bit of um, of what's going on, and often the changes uh, radiographically are um, well, they're bloody, um, they're, they're profound by the time that we get to see them. Quite honest, uh, and um, and the other thing that strikes me interest as an interesting thing about this condition, um, and I say this in the context of um, being, uh, you know, seeing birds, and you know, I've seen several birds just today that have uh, feather destructive behaviour, and that's not something that we see in wild birds at all. There's no, um, I can't think of a single time that I've been made aware of a um, a bird in the wild with um that's plucked its own feathers um uh the the um you know in a destructive way maybe some of those birds that are broody or whatever but um for birds to traumatize their own plumage is unheard of but this is a disease that i think has some uh captive factors that contribute to it but we do definitely see a proportion of um of wild snakes i've had several red belly black snakes come in with uh with um radiographic changes suggestive of proliferative spinal osteopathy and um and so it's interesting for those reasons do you see the same sort of thing brennan yes and it's as you mentioned is not a rare occurrence with the snakes that are brought to us and i have seen it occasionally in in other species of reptiles um lizards um i don't know whether i've ever seen or diagnosed one in a chelonian have you mark in a turtle or tortoise no i haven't said there's a i think it uh for a variety of reasons that uh pathology the pathologic process doesn't lend itself to the the anatomy of turtles they they yes. come up with a different syndrome yes um, 
So the signs, Mark, you mentioned about um, diagnosing it um, most commonly with a with plain radiographs, and um, it's certainly the way I go with with um, suspicious cases with it. But often it's a well, it, it could be various different um, signs that the the owner. It may be a snake that um, is just missed a few feeds, mightn't it, Mark? It may be a snake that is just not as as active in its enclosure. Um, it may be a snake, and this one is. I find is 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 not unusual. A snake that's a little bit grumpy, yes. Um, and um, I think that's where we're certain to talk about it in a sec about um, pain with this condition that that we assume that it it is likely an extremely or very painful condition with them, and that plays into our our treatment options with it and what we ultimately do with a lot of them is is ending up euthanizing them unfortunately or or, or virtually 99.999% of them um, because we think it's so so painful with them so the signs can be really variable because so we have a an animal that has a if if we stick with snakes i suppose that that cannot ambulate um um, normally, um, so it can't get around as normal. It probably is not going to be coiling as usual. It may not be feeding as well because it doesn't. It doesn't. It's got its sore back. Um, and regardless of whether it's an infectious cause or not, um, it's it's got a stiff and or sore back and it's sore mark. And 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 that's sort of what I have. That's my takeaway from some sort of the condition that then leads on to the. The plethora of signs that might you might see from it. Um, any other thoughts? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that um, that uh, one of the only other thing I was going to say was that um, it, a common thing I find is the snakes don't perch anymore. That they that's a really common finding for us to hear people say the snakes have. One of the signs they notice is the snake is down the bottom of the enclosure and not up on its um, branch. And um, and I think that whole feeds back into that whole certain positions are going to be painful. And uh, and the snakes do a great job of concealing that. They, as you said, they the things are often subtle behavioural changes or mood changes to that that give us indication that they're in pain. But I think the pain is often quite considerable. Yes. And another, it just reminded me of another sign that um, is not uncommon. Um, my snake is not defecated. Um, yes. So, um, it's, you know, it, it, it's it's painful. It, 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 uh, it can't strain. It doesn't want to strain or it can't pass because it's so, um, so stiff and sore in that period there. So our, our you know, suspicion is high with, with um, we see it most commonly in our um, variations on our on our carpet pythons. Mark, do you see it most commonly in those species? Like it's, I wouldn't. I uh, I see it in lots of species, Brendan. And I was just thinking, as you said, then I don't know the the you know we see uh, the Morelia species as the highest proportion of the snakes that we see, but whether um, you know whether it's more common in those or just because we see more of those snakes, I couldn't give you a hard and fast answer. Um, yes. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it certainly is uh, not an uncommon thing to see in our diamond pythons and uh, carpet snakes. So 
diagnosing it or a workup on the mark, apart from those plain radiographs, anything else that you would consider doing with with a suspicious case? And some of them can be, they can early on they can be fairly subtle, so they have a stiff section of 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 the snake as you as you um, mentioned. Um, but on radiographs, you may see really really subtle changes there. Um, I like to think I'm reasonably good at picking these <laughs> these days um, and um, pick them fairly early on. Um, but um, what else would you consider doing if you um, have one that you're suspicious of and you take a plain radiograph and you're not quite sure whether that's confirmed it for you? Well, uh, before I tell you what I would do next, let me just bounce a question off you. Um, I There was a bit of a discussion. Of, so it's a, a proliferative proliferative spinal osteopathy is a is a radiologic diagnosis so you make it on the images and then there these cases can be further subdivided um, on histopathologic grounds as um, in this is the way I do it as either active bacterial osteoarthritis chronic bacterial osteoarthritis or non-inflammatory lesions consistent with osteoarthrosis with no evidence of bacteria or a final subset could be the um the Paget's disease like um uh lytic blastic sclerosis cases so um so what I generally tend to do, because a significant portion of them tend to be associated with active or chronic bacterial infection of the spinal bone, um, we, we culture the blood. We get a blood culture done. Um, my experience is that it's exceedingly difficult to get samples taken from the, the actual site of infection without causing you know significant additional damage. Um, and most, well, there's a high correlation in our cases with um, uh, uh, with evidence of bacterial infection and um, and bacteria in the blood. And so, blood culture often gives us not only a diagnosis, well, guides us in the diagnosis of whether bacteria are present or not, but also gives us a, 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 the possibility of treating by doing um, sensitivity testing with the bugs that we culture. There's a lot of fancy words there with your pathological differentiation there, Mark, but... <laughs> I must admit, I rarely go to that extent um, with them because my recommendations invariably are euthanasia um, for these cases and I tend to sort of <laughs> keep to the chase with them. Um, and I have played around with some of them for many weeks or months um, in the past and to be honest, I don't think I've had one that I've diagnosed that hasn't ended up being euthanized. Um, and I think I, ta I take on board your um, your pessimism um, because I think you you mentioned before that there are some cases that you'll get those ones that maybe don't have a rigid section but have some very subtle signs of changes to the bone. And I think that subset, the very early ones, are probably the ones that you may well have a chance of um, identifying the bug and halting the process there. Um, and even though there still may be some subtle 
changes to the bone, I think if you can clear the infection in those ones, you will relieve a significant amount of the pain and discomfort. Um, but you're exactly right. Once they have significant change, um, I don't think you're going... If, if there's significant change, I don't think um, treating the bacteria makes any difference. The bugs have set up uh, locations in the bone where, bacteria, where antibiotics can't reach suitable um, uh, MICs to affect them. They persist no matter what you do. And I think there's also a stimulation of the those cells that um, break down and create new bone, break down old bone, create new bone, um, that certain bacteria trigger the activation of those cells. And even if you kill the bacteria, the process, I think, continues once those cells have been activated. And so, um, so yeah, I think um, you're... Once it's significant, it doesn't matter how good a histopathologic diagnosis you get, you're still going to end up with a snake that needs to be euthanized. Yes, and you did mention a couple of other potential ways to try and nut out the diagnosis. And, yeah, one of the difficult ones and the frustrating ones is doing, and it's recommended in the old MADA. I don't know whether they talk about it in the new MADA, Rectal Medicine and Surgery textbook of, of doing a biopsy, a bone biopsy and um, a, a culture from a surgical um, biopsy and surgical site there. And um, I must admit I, I have done those in the past, but I, I, I'm very reluctant to do them um, as well. And interestingly, Mark, Mark, you make a great point there in that you mentioned all the potential um, final diagnostic um your little algorithm there of, of, of infectious and arthrosis and um, arthritis. Um, and the one thing you didn't mention is neoplastic um, causes oh, yes. there and um, um, interest. In, and, and I think it's a really important point there. And um, I agree totally. Uh, um, you often think that, they, um, that that should be on the differential list. And I, I, I'm not saying there aren't um, neoplastic um, cases that cause this, but uh, I cannot recall um, ever rare, seeing one that has been diagnosed as a neoplastic cause, yeah, yeah. for this condition. So I think that's a good point um, with it. So um, go ahead. I was just going to ask you what you think of the because the you know I think a you know a significant pro proportion of them are associated with uh, osteomyelitis. Um, do you think where do the bacteria come from, Brendan? How do the um, the bacteria set up shop in in the the um, spinal? Why do they set up shop in the spinal cord of these um, snakes? That's the question, isn't it, Mark? As they say, you, you know, it's not the answer that get, wins you the Nobel Prize. It's a question, and you've got the question there, Mark. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how it works, and I, I, I think perhaps some somehow, um, as usual, somebody smarter than myself, and and maybe you, perhaps not, um, will be able to nut that out in the future there, and and I think that talks. You know, we should chat a little bit about potential. The theories on the causes of it, um, not just how it, these bacterial ones, how the bacteria get there. And I think one of the causes, one of the potential causes um, of the pathogenesis of it is the, the, the thought of um, these snakes in captivity and that they um, aren't getting much exercise and maybe it's tied in with um, lack of lack of tone and lack of um, exercise and perhaps also tied in with 
with I think um, maybe add in things like um, um, bone density and um, um, vitamin D as usual um, and, and all those sorts of things Mark um, is, is my thoughts it's sort of multifactorial and I think somebody needs to do a master's or a PhD where they look at things in in these cases and also get back to normal snakes and doing bone densities and and um, calcium levels in in spines in 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 snakes and and well, comparing think, them with yeah because you, you've jumped on my very own soapbox because um, you'll know talking to many herpetoculturists you know the the accepted wisdom is that snakes don't need those things they survive without them but I think um, that it's quite likely we'll find out that um, metabolic bone disease of a sort um, is the the reason that um, that these snakes have less well protected bones, and there might be a reason that they get um, you know a particular infection, the susceptible snakes, but the nature of their bones and the circulation in them, the uh, the formation of the bones uh, predisposes them to the likelihood of turbulent blood flow and and bacteria. Um, uh, in a bacteremic situation uh, attached to the walls of those turbulent flow blood vessels in the spinal cord. And I, I suspect we'll find that um, that snakes do benefit from that, uh, that um, appropriate level of calcium during growth. I think a lot of the little hatchos we see that get fed pinkies that have poor calcium to phosphorus ratios, um, yes. they're predisposed to this sort of problem. And then longer term, we have these snakes that are big fat slugs, Mark, and they're not exercising. They're just sitting around being fed um, too often. Um, and I think that contributes longer term with them because I think a fair number of the ones that we see are, are middle-aged or older snakes. So there's certainly several years, if not if not older. Um, so our classic with those species that we were talking about, Morelias, etc., it's, you know, 5, 10, 15 years onwards um, and that we rarely, or I rarely see them with, with really young snakes. Do you see, have you seen any really young ones with spinal osteopathy, Mark, um, less than a year a or couple, two? Yeah, a couple, yeah. Not the, as just like you, it's predominantly um, an uh, disease a clinical disease of old snakes but i suspect um that that some of those snakes have the damaging uh events happen when they're young that's what i was yes. get at that they're yes they're headed that direction from the first few months of their life so just briefly to wrap it up mark the prognosis ain't too good is it with these cases yeah. especially with those ones where you've diagnosed it on um, those radiographs and you see those classic signs of that horrible looking spine there um, and I think the key factor there is that it is a painful condition almost um, certainly and that quality of life needs to be looked at and it's a bit of a shock isn't it to a lot of these clients that they didn't that they you chat to them in the consult and then an hour or two later after taking some radiographs you're telling them that your your animal needs to be euthanized so it, um, you've hit the nail on the head that's one of the characteristics of these cases that um that the people think there might be some you know minor injury or or maybe they've overinterpreted something but um it is a shock when you have to relate the fact that these snakes are, are suffering immensely and that there's um, there's no end to that suffering in sight and uh, we need to um, 
consider humane euthanasia as a resolution to the problem? Yes, well, it's not a very happy end to the podcast this week, Mark, but I think we will leave it there. And um, it is a fascinating condition. And um, if anybody has some radiographs of uh, spinal osteopathy cases they've seen, please email vetgurus at gmail.com and we can have a look at them and um, point out the um, horrible spines um, in there. (laughs) We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.